0: Thank you very much, Lanray. There was a program on the BBC this week. It was called Ian Wright, Home Truths. And the subtext was this. Footballer Ian Wright shares his own story and investigates what effect growing up in a psychologically abusive and violent home has on children in the UK. Now, he's, he's now 56, Ian Wright, a very ex-footballer. But he was in the program, he was identifying how anger, pent up anger, from all the stuff that he endured when he was a child, has affected him all the way through in life. In fact, he was saying, to be honest, some of the stuff I did on the football field, some of which was pretty ugly in his case, was due to the fact that he just had all this anger inside of him. And at one point in the program, He talks to this psychologist who helps him, just dialogues with him in a very real way, even though it's on TV. And he says to her at one point, sometimes I feel like I think about it too much, all that happened to him, that it's something I can't control. He said, I go to the anger part of me. The guy who used to be nine or 10, he said, yeah, the anger part is a nine-year-old. And Ian Wright is very bravely facing up to what happened to him and the long-term consequences upon his heart of what happened to him. And in this series, as we're looking at the heart, what we mean is stuff that happens that affects our innermost person, the internal person that directs the external actions, that center of emotions that all of us have that affects us in many, many ways. Now, you may not have had, you may have had happened similar to what Ian Wright had happened to him, or you may not, but I wonder, how's your heart? Because stuff's happened, isn't it? Stuff happens. Stuff is going to happen. How's, how's your heart this morning? And we need this series. It's a very practical one, how to take care of your heart. And we've asked, Lord, search my heart. We've said, we've taught how to guard our hearts. We've encouraged us not to lose heart. And this morning, take care of your heart. And one person, against all the odds in the Bible, who managed to take care of his heart was a guy called Joseph. He's a, a major character in the Old Testament. In fact, 13 chapters are devoted to the ups and downs of his story. It's a dramatic rollercoaster, West End story, full of emotion, family tensions, misfortune, and opportunities for revenge. There's lots of lessons for us. How to take care of your heart because stuff happens. Now, we should say, That Joseph, of course, some of you will know, Joseph ultimately is a story pointing to Jesus. That's the big story in Joseph. But there's an awful lot in his story to teach us how to take care of our hearts. And what I'm going to do to help us is to outline his problematic story in three quick phases and then draw us to two lessons, perhaps I would say the most important lessons for taking care of your heart that you will ever find. So his story. Firstly, he has a thoroughly dysfunctional family. I wonder, have any of you ever thought, my there's something weird about my family? One guy said, happiness is having a large, loving, caring. Close knit family, but in another city. Well, Joseph's family would have made a brilliant Jeremy Kyle show. He was the eleventh of twelve sons born to his father Jacob, but not only did he have eleven brothers and one sister recorded, no doubt others as well. But he, they, between them, they had four mothers living in the same facility. Jacob was. Joseph, rather, was born to Rachel, and he was Jacob's favorite because he was born in Jacob's old age to the one of the two wives and two maidservants, the wife that he really loved. So Jacob had this favorite son, Joseph. It was totally dysfunctional. There was rivalry among those four mothers. There was favoritism towards Joseph. There was jealousy, resentment, anger. In Genesis chapter 37 verse 3 tells us Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons and as you will probably know famously he made a richly ornamented robe for him Not surprisingly in this chaotic story the next verse says when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And then Joseph, at the age of 17, has a couple of dreams. And they turn out to be miraculously God-given dreams. But he's not very wise with them. And so he goes, and here's what we read, Genesis 37, verse 5. We read this, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, first mistake, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he'd said. And he hadn't learned his lesson. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So in verse four, before we read, his brothers hated him. After the dreams, verse 5, they hated him all the more. And again, verse 8, they hated him all the more. And then verse 10, his father rebuked him. It's not going well. It's a crazy family, messed up, dysfunctional situation. Well, sometime later, we don't know how long later, the brothers are out taking care of the father's sheep. And uh, Jacob decides to send Joseph to them to find out how they're doing, simple as that. Well, they see him coming. The mother's not around, the father's nowhere to be seen, so they hatch a plan. Verses 19 to 20 goes like this. They say, here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. It's going absolutely crazy. Well, Reuben intervenes slightly and says, let's not kill him. He's the oldest son. He's probably representing his father there. He's trying to look after things a little bit. He says, let's not kill him. Let's just get rid of him. Either way, let's make sure we never have to see this dreamer again who's just full of himself and his crazy dreams. Well, they cover his, they stick Joseph in assistant. They cover his robe with blood from an animal, take it back to their father, and say, Jacob, look, I'm so sorry. Father, we're so sorry. Joseph's died, and Jacob is utterly devastated. Utterly devastated. Meanwhile, Joseph is being taken out of the system by some merchants all the way down to Egypt. I wonder what is going on in Joseph's heart at that point. All sorts of things, perhaps regret, certainly rejection, anger, anxiety, fear, all sorts. Dysfunctional family. Then Joseph is a victim of injustice. So he goes down to Egypt, and in in Egypt, Joseph is taken to the slave market, and he's purchased by Potiphar, who's the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And he's going to work in some menial position. But we find out that God is with him. God hasn't deserted him. God is actually with him. Chapter 39, verse 2, The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. The Lord gave him success in everything he did. And so he's promoted in Potiphar's house until everything that Potiphar is in charge of, he gives to Joseph. And Joseph is put in charge of, and he prospers in what he's doing. It all seems to be going pretty well, albeit as a slave in a foreign land. And then we have this statement, Joseph was well-built and handsome. It's a burden some of us have to carry. (laughs) Joseph was well-built and handsome. And Potiphar's wife enters the story. See, Potiphar's wife, for whatever reason, takes a fancy to Joseph. And day after day, she says to him, come to bed with me. Well, one day, Joseph is in the house doing his duties. In comes Potiphar's wife. Again, she tries to seduce him. She catches hold of his robe. He flees, as he's done every other day, but she's got his robe. And so the servants later come in, and she says to them, Look what what this slave from Canaan has done. He's tried to attack me. And then Potiphar gets word of this, of course. And he is utterly furious, understandably, with her story about Joseph. Joseph's master, the text says, burning with anger, took him and put him in prison. How are you feeling now, Joseph? Well, one injustice upon another injustice. It's like the effects of that dysfunctional family must now be compounded further. More rejection, more anger, more anxiety, more fear... I can hear him crying out to God, what are you doing? I wonder what's going on in his heart. And then in prison, Joseph is repeatedly forgotten. More pain for his heart to deal with. You see, there in prison, we read again that the Lord was with him. And the Lord showed kindness to him and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison chief. Such that in time, again, Joseph is put in charge of all the prisoners. So the prison chief has an easier time. And once again, you read, the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. But then the next words are this. Chapter 40, verse 1. Some time later. I wonder what later means. I wonder how many years have gone by that Joseph is suffering injustice in prison. His brothers have thrown him in the cistern and Potiphar has thrown him into prison, both thoroughly unjustly. I wonder what's going on in his world. I can imagine again Joseph in prison saying, God, have you forgotten me? Do you hate me this much to leave me here? Well, sometime later, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, they upset Pharaoh. They get thrown into prison. And in time, they have some dreams themselves. And Joseph's able to interpret those dreams. Basically, the cupbearer is going to be promoted back to his place, and the baker's going to be killed. It's as simple as that. And to the chief cupbearer, Joseph says to him, when you get out remind, think of me, remember me to Pharaoh. I've done nothing to deserve being in this dungeon. But verse 23 then tells us, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And then the next words, when two full years had passed. I mean, this story is building, isn't it? You think, Joseph, how could you possibly cope with this any longer? Injustice on injustice upon injustice. It's a lot to take maybe you've had a lot to take how's your heart well the story continues with joseph's brothers coming to egypt for grain then all the family including his father coming to live joseph dying at the age of 110 because joseph's been promoted because of these dreams and his interpretation it all turns out to be right what can we learn from Joseph about caring for our hearts. I'd suggest to you that these are possibly the two most significant things. Number one, forgiveness. Number two, confident trust in God's sovereignty. Firstly, forgiveness. Let's just rewind a little bit in the story. Joseph's brother, Joseph's in charge now, and his brother's have come to Egypt for grain because there's a famine across the whole area. He hasn't seen them for 20 years, but he knows who they are. And without revealing his identity, Joseph sends the brothers back to Canaan with some grain, but keeps one brother so that they're forced to come back again, this time bringing Benjamin, his precious younger brother. And when they came back again, Joseph, like, it's like he strung them along a bit, Not revealing who he was, he managed to keep going until he couldn't bear it anymore, and he cracked up, broke down into tears, and disclosed who he was. I wonder what you would say. I wonder what I would have wanted to say to them after all of that. This is what he says to them. And now, do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. (laughs) that's extraordinary. He wants no harm to them, despite all the harm they've done to him. Don't even be angry with yourselves. In fact, later on in the next few verses, he wants good to come to them. It's not just, well, I'll put up with you. Here's some grain, off you go. No, he wants good to them. He's seeking their blessing. After all those years and all that pain due to their wrongdoing. I want to say, Joseph, how do you do that? I think the answer has to be this through the tough work of forgiveness. See, it's not natural. Forgiveness is not natural. This forgiveness is unnatural. And it shows that he must have dealt with his heart along the way over those 20 years. Forgiving his brothers at some point, and probably at multiple points, as rage and anger and resentment arose in him again along the way. The tough work of forgiveness. Philip Yancey, who's a famous Christian writer, said this about forgiveness. Despite a hundred sermons on forgiveness, we do not forgive easily, nor find ourselves easily forgiven. Forgiveness, we discover, is always harder than the sermons make it out to be. We nurse sores, go to elaborate lengths to rationalize our behavior, perpetuate family feuds, punish ourselves, punish others, all to avoid this most na- unnatural act. But the point is this. The point is this. Forgiveness saves your heart as much as anything from multiplying the effects of wrongs done. You may well have heard this before. Unforgiveness is the act of drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. And it's a really wide-ranging poison, is forgiveness. Speak to any psychologist, any doctor, they'll tell you, relationally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, the poison of unforgiveness is so toxic, it spreads through everything in your life. It's a little bit what Ian Wright was saying. They talked about forgiveness, the need to forgive his mother that he had managed to do, and to forgive his father in particular. Forgiveness is not forgetting Forgiveness is not pretending or denying. Forgiveness is not being a doormat to further wrongdoing. It's freeing yourself to move forward, to respond and not just react. I seriously believe Joseph had done the hard work, the heart work of forgiveness, of choosing to no longer hold his brother's wrongdoing against them. And even getting to the point of wishing them not harm, but blessing and finding ways in himself to bless them. Even though he had the power to do them harm. Nelson Mandela is an extraordinary figure in our recent history. I say our, South African obviously, but in world, recent world history. And the way that he came out of prison after so many years of torture, mistreatment, a bit of a Joseph story in some ways, was utterly remarkable. His, his authorised biographer, Anthony Sampson, wrote a big book on him, which was great. But in it, he said this, He, Mandela, symbolises a much broader forgiveness and understanding and reaching out. If he'd come out of prison and sent a different message, I can tell you, this whole country, South Africa, would be in flames. He's absolutely right. And then he said this, Mandela knew exactly the way he wanted to come out. I wonder if Joseph knew the power in his hands, and that he could... He knew, and then he decided, this is the way I want to come out. I'm going to come out not holding their wrong against them, but seeking their blessing. I have the power to do that. How's your heart? How's your heart? Whose wrong is God calling you to no longer hold against them? How do you want to come out of this? You might say, that's just too hard. You don't know what's happened. And you're absolutely right. I don't know what's happened. And I don't honestly want to say this is a quick step. This can be a long, painful process. But let me tell you this. Like Ian Wright, and like Joseph would have been, without forgiveness, you will remain trapped, shaped, squeezed, molded by others' wrongdoing. You might need some help. You might need to find a trusted friend to help you with that process. Forgiveness. The second most significant matter in taking care of your heart, I honestly believe is this, confident trust in God's sovereignty. Let's go back to the story. So Jacob and the whole family moved to Egypt and it's a bit like a happily ever after story. They're hugely blessed. But eventually, of course, Jacob, the father, dies, and the brothers have another moment of worry. You see, with the father dead, Joseph might at last turn on them. This is what we read instead. So his brothers came and threw themselves down before him in fear that he might, with all his power, now turn on them. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. He's not avoiding the facts, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. And again, he's looking to bless them. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Again, I want to ask the question, (laughs) Joseph, how how do you do that? You do that. He was able to do that. And again, this would not have been simple. But the text tells us because, how because he was supremely confident that there is a greater reality behind the reality. That what has happened, however unpleasant, however unfair and it was, however wrong and it was, has been permitted, or in this case orchestrated by God for greater good. Because God is sovereign. God is supremely wise. God is trustworthy. And God has never slipped up in the story of Joseph. Confident trust in God's sovereignty saves you from the poisonous effects of rejection, of anger, of anxiety, and fear because it allows your heart to be at rest, to find peace amid the questions. God's sovereignty is the anchor of certainty on the stormy sea of mystery, questions, and confusion. And it's not easy. Forgiveness is seriously difficult work. Trusting God's sovereignty is seriously difficult work, but it will save you from a lot of pain. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that in May 2002, I I just crashed completely out of 2008 to yes to I just crashed completely and I spent from May to October literally not knowing what my future was literally I'm not overstating that I had not a clue what I was going to do whether I'd go back to work whether I'd have to find a different job whether I'd be fit for anything and do you know what I distinctly I claim no credit from to myself I distinctly remember being at peace it don't make any sense But I had managed, by God's grace, to get to that point of trusting him. Peace doesn't come from where you are in life or what you have in life. Just ask Bill and Melinda Gates this week. But from how your heart is with where you are in life and what you have. And I believe Joseph had got to a point of trusting God's sovereignty in the middle of the story. See, it's all very well to look back on Joseph's story and say, well, look, it came out fine, didn't it? Of course he would trust God's sovereignty. But I'm not talking about the end of the story. I'm talking in the middle of the story. I'm talking in prison. I'm talking even perhaps on the way to Egypt. I mean, perhaps even when Potiphar's wife is accusing him. He trusts the sovereignty of God. C.H. Spurgeon said this, Spurgeon's always good for a quote. He said this, there is no attribute, this is quite a statement, there is no attribute more comforting to God's children than that of his sovereignty. Can you rest in that? In his sovereignty that God still rules, still loves, is still in charge despite every question that you may have remaining. God's sovereignty keeps me from having to solve everything. It keeps me from being a victim of fate or my own mistakes or the wrong done to me. Here's what I'd like us to do as we finish. You may have a situation you're facing. You may have a past that's dogging you. And if you're at home, you can do this for yourself. If you're in the room here, here's what I'm going to ask us to do. I'm not going to force anybody to do anything, but I'm going to ask you to do some business with God this morning for the sake of your heart. And it's this. You might say, I, I know I've got to forgive this person. It might be yourself. It might be someone really close to you. It might be something from way back you've never really faced like Ian Wright had never really faced. In a minute, I'm going to ask you, if that's true of you, I'm just going to ask you to stand. And The reason for asking you to do that is just so you do Something. And begin to talk to God. Because it's going to take a step of courage. Or you might be facing a situation and you say, my heart is in a bit of a mess. And for you, it's this. God's sovereignty. I will rest on it and submit all my questions and mystery to that certainty that God is in charge. And again, I'd just like you to, where you are in a moment, just to stand. Just as a way of doing business, doing something. Because that's going to take some Courage. Holy Spirit, please, you've been with us. Come and help us get to a point of doing business with you here this morning. I ask, Lord, you'll remove shame from this room. I ask, Lord, that you'll remove any fear from this room. And I say, Lord, will you help us to do business with you? May this be the start of a new step forward for many, I pray. So without any pressure to you, But I want to urge you to do business with God. Perhaps if either of those, you need to take a step on. Will you just stand where you are? If you're at home, make your own response. I'm sure there are many. Please don't be afraid. And When you've stood, will you please just talk to him? Be real with him. Tell him, God, this is is where it is with me. He knows anyway. He loves you. Talk to him. And then stop talking and receive his grace. If you're wondering, please don't miss this moment. It might really matter for you. Whichever of those two is true for you, take the first steps. And maybe dare to say, I let so-and-so off that hook I've been holding them on. Well, God, I'm going to start trusting you in this situation, whichever it is for you. Start speaking back to God. Do some business with him. He loves you and is here Oh yeah.